Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as an audiobook, as a paperback, but the ebook, esteemed reader, the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, once you get that free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, come back with cash money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story. For more information on those novels, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, all the world's best people, go to middlegradeninja.com. I couldn't be more excited this morning. We have the great fortune to be joined by literary agent Rachel Orr. Rachel, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. I am thrilled that you've uh, made time for us because I've got all kinds of questions for you. And I know we're hopefully going to do a deep dive on uh, picture books and all kinds of great stuff. But I know that, or I, I have a rule that I do not summarize anybody else's uh, background because you're right here. Why would I make you sit here and suffer through me getting everything about you wrong uh, when you could just tell us? So please give esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll get started. Sure. Yes. So I started in, um, I actually started in the marketing department of William Morrow back when that company existed um, in 1998. I had an interview for William Morrow Marketing and an interview for Harper Collins Editorial. Really wanted the um, Harper job, but I got the William Morrow Marketing. I didn't know what marketing was, but I thought I can't be bad. It's in children's books. So I took that job. And then within Within eight months, I had slid over to editorial and we were bought out by HarperCollins. So it was great. I was I was given an office um, with a window and a door, which is more than I had in my railroad apartment. And so, um, yeah, I just kept it till and worked there under Barbara Lilicki working on um, a wide range of projects, but primarily picture books, um, some middle grade fiction as well, and a lot of nonfiction. And I stayed there till 2007. Um, and then became an agent for Prospect Agency, working with Emily Sylvan Kim. And Prospect, um, there are, Emily is the owner of the agency, and then there's myself, and there's Charlotte Winger, who also works on picture books, and Anne Rose, who works on um, primarily middle grade YA and adult books. And I've been, I've been there ever since, really, just really loving what I do, and um, loving the opportunity to work with both authors and illustrators developing projects ranging from from board books through YA and a few select adult projects as well. So as we record that, that's what, 15 years, which in publishing time is easily 30, 45. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> the way the market moves, right? <laughs> so you must love it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, I've got uh, all kinds of uh, questions for you. Um, Esteemed audience loves a good origin story, and I know I've read elsewhere that you were a big reader as a child. In fact, if your parents told you to stop reading and go outside, you just take your book with you. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Um, yeah, I always loved um, loved reading. I loved writing stories. I had you know those big yellow legal pads, and I would just write lots of chapter ones. I didn't get really much past chapter one, but I would be that kid um, reading in the car. Luckily, I never got car sick, but I would, I would have my book. And then as I, we would pass a street light, you know, I would try to 
try to catch the light on my book and just just <laughs> read as much as possible, definitely. Kids today with their uh, fancy electronic tablets with books on them, or oh, I know how good they got it. <laughs> right, right. I would have. Oh, that would have been so probably really good for my eyes too. I would imagine at least slightly better than trying to squint in the dark and read. But but I was born in the wrong era. I don't know, or maybe the right era. I'm glad I got. You know, I, there's a lot a lot of great stuff with just being able to, the easy access, right? Being able to get virtually any book you want immediately on eBooks or audiobooks, but but not the same thrill as, as going to the bookstore, going to Walden Books and getting your, you know, the latest Christopher Pike paperback rack edition. That's all good stuff. Well, do you remember what were some of your favorite books uh, from childhood? Oh, let's see. Well, my, much to my, <clears throat> much to my daughter's chagrin, my favorite book is probably Lois Lowry's A Summer to Die, which is super morbid. I think it was her first book published in around 77 or so. Um, but it's, it was that era, which is still very popular today in middle grade of the, you know, someone has to die in the, in the book. And so in this case, it was, um, it was the older sister. And I just, I don't know. I did, I have a I have a younger sister, so maybe that's I related to it. But really love that book, um, and can definitely recite passages of that. But I'll I won't I will spare you all from from doing that today. I also really loved Shel Silverstein's Where the Sidewalk Ends, which I found out, and this will definitely date me. But I found out was published actually on my exact birthday. Like that was the release date for it. So. Ooh, it was meant to be that I was going into children's books. So yeah, those were some, I, I, it's funny because I work on a lot of picture books, but I don't, I don't remember reading a lot of good classic picture books as a kid. I feel like I read a lot of the, the golden books and then, and I, I learned to read pretty early when I was about four. And so I feel like I read those because my mom thought I had just memorized all the books that I owned, which I guess could be possible. And then I guess one day in the car, I said to her, oh, what does this mean, Body by Fisher? And she said, well, where did you, where did you get that? I said, oh, it says it right here. So then she thought, oh, maybe I didn't just have all those books memorized. So she got me a book that um, I hadn't seen yet and I read the whole thing. So, so I guess I could read, but I pretty much went straight from those little golden books I don't know, then into like Little House in the Prairie. So there's a lot of those classic picture books I don't feel like I read a lot of, but I can tell you one, well, I can tell you actually one that I absolutely hated, which was Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, which is a, I mean, it's a classic, right? It won the Caldecott. It's terrifying. His parents sit on him when he's a rock, but I really like, and I haven't found anyone else who has actually heard of this book, but The Paper Party by Don Freeman. Do you know that one? He's a, he did um, Corduroy, which is what he's more known for. But the paper party was brilliant. Um, to me, at least, it was about this kid who loved... Uh, now, now, saying this, if I read this submission, there's no way I would take on this project. <laughs> but it was brilliant as a, as a five-year-old or whatever. But this boy... Um, is watching the show The Dinky Donks, his, this clown show on TV. And then they, and he's sent to the basement, to this like cinder block basement. And he's in his 
purple bathrobe and has a bad haircut. And he's sent there while his parents are having a party. He's watching the Dinky Donks. And then this clown pops out of the TV and extends a pink ladder down and invites him to join the show. And I just thought that was amazing. And looking back, you're like, why does he even need a ladder? Like the TV is not very far off the ground, but it's just the whole portal aspect. Um, and I thought, I thought it was amazing. So there you go. I would be so thrilled to climb into a television with most of my favorite characters from childhood. But if it's a clown, maybe maybe a little bit hesitant. <laughs> I think the clown was made of paper. Everything in the set and the characters were made of paper. So maybe it wasn't that harmful. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be a little bit. I mean, worst case scenario, you just give a good tear and it's over. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. So... Um, you're, you're filling out, you said, uh, legal pads, but you can't get past chapter one. Um, do you still write? Do you, do you, do you have aspirations to write or are you? No. Well, I think part of, part of the problem, I know my dad is always after me to write a middle grade novel and I'm like, it's really hard. Like now I know, right. I know how hard it is. And I think a lot of editors and agents are like this in that they would just, start editing themselves right from the start. And so it's hard to get very far. Um, yeah, I definitely, I went to school for writing. I went to Kenyon College and I found that a lot of people when they enter publishing, they they want to be writers, right? So that's a, it's a, I know this has been debated lately, but it's a good relatively nine to five job if you're interested in, in writing. It's kind of a natural um, place to go. But um, I found that once you get into publishing, either you stuck with publishing and didn't end up writing or you ended up writing and got out of publishing. So I definitely was in the stick, stuck with publishing, obviously. I don't have, I'm not one of these people who, um, oh, you, you hear writers, and maybe you yourself are like this, you hear writers who say, oh, if I don't write every day, I feel like a part of myself is missing or that they just are thinking about their stories all the time. And I'm not like that. I don't have ideas for stories. I find that I get my creative fulfillment. And I think one of my strengths as an agent is more taking someone's idea and helping them to, um, to mold it and shape it into something, um, into something that they want that's, that's just making it as strong as possible. Um, so that's where, and then I, I like working with a different, a bunch of different authors I don't think I could just be focused on writing one particular project over the course of two years, but I really enjoy um, working with some picture book authors and switching over and working with a middle grade author and helping to brainstorm for those projects. I just find really fulfilling. I'm, I'm not one of those people that has to write every day or this is, did this day even happen? Um, the wonderful thing when I'm able to write and when I'm working on a project, I want to, I want to at least touch base with it every day, at least look at it for a minute and remind myself that at some point I have to finish this thing. Uh, but I do talk to some, some writers that, that, that can't get away. And then I talked to, uh, Lucy and Diver, uh, esteemed audience. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, check the back catalog. And she talked, she fascinated me because she gets up and she writes for a couple, she, first she walked five miles, but then she, uh, 
uh, writes for two hours, and then she's done. She puts her, her stuff away and focuses on being an agent for the rest of the day. And I just found that fascinating. Like, wow, wow. You're, you're the one. I knew somewhere out there was someone who could pull this off. And uh, I haven't talked to anybody else who, who has that schedule, but Lucian Diver does. <laughs> yeah. I think if I were to write anything, though, I would write... Um like more first person memoir type short essays. Those are the kind of things that whenever I do write, I enjoy writing because they're short and they're very different from what I do day to day. And I took um, between the summer between when I uh, left Harper and started at Prospect, I took this first person memoir writing class. It was really fun, but yeah. Like narrative, like, like uh, essays about um, feelings, politics. Uh, nothing that deep, just more kind of fun, light, like David sedaris type of things, but, but not me not being David Sedaris, but just kind of, but very, very light stuff, which is very different than everything everyone else was writing in the class. But um, yeah, just fun memory, more memories and kind of dwelling on things, but in a much lighter way. And I know you uh, you worked as a bookseller with Barnes and Noble briefly right after college, right? Because you you had an intern with Highlights Magazine and, and Kenyon Review. So at what point do you decide I'm definitely moving toward publishing? Was that always the plan before you go to school or when do you figure that out? Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Ever since I realized that that was a thing you could do, um, I, had, I had kind of wanted to be a teacher yeah, previous, my mom was a teacher. And so I thought, oh, I'll go into teaching and I love kids. And then when I realized pretty much in high school that this was the publishing existed and this was a thing you could do, then I definitely, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. So one of my college friends, actually, she always remarks how like my first day freshman year, I was like, I want to go into children's book publishing. And so, yeah, I was just really lucky in that regard that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And you knew it was going to be children's books. You didn't flirt with uh, any other genre? No, no. I think that's one thing I learned at Kenyon, too. So I, like I said, I studied creative writing. Um, the focus there was more on short stories. I mean, probably because that's more manageable to finish in a semester. Um, and I really learned that I was terrible at writing short stories. That was my big takeaway. Um, and also, it just wasn't the kind of, it wasn't what I like to read as much either. And again, it's, I, I really, and that's why I, I skew, I think, towards picture books, light, funny. Those are just more, more my cup of tea than something super weighty and dark and serious. So, okay. so yeah, I never, I never toyed around with adult publishing. I definitely never toyed. Once I was already in children's book publishing, I took a copy editing class at NYU. It was one of the further education classes presumably Harper paid for it, which is why I was able to do it. And so, but in the, the class, the copy editing class, you had to, you had to try a various, a wide range of assignments. It wasn't just children's books. And I remember I had to, an assignment, I had to copy edit um, a cookbook, a, a recipe, and I did a terrible job on it because evidently I was supposed to be able to catch that, oh, that should not have been a cup of that. It should have only been a tablespoon. And the teacher remarked on my paper that I must not cook very much very much but yeah I never I think I did apply for a cookbook publisher only because like it was a job and it was open but I never I don't think would have succeeded in that 
Well, uh, before we started, you were showing me your beautiful new installation of, of, of pans. It's true. Uh, it's true. Have you, has that changed for you, or is that that's still more or less true? I actually, um, I do cook a lot more now, and I am more interested in cooking. I remember the first time I really had to cook for myself was when I was a junior studying at the University of Exeter. Um, I remember I couldn't fall asleep one night because I was like, I... I have to, it was that realization that you have to feed yourself for the rest of your life. And that terrified me. And at that point, I think I had already almost caught the microwave on fire by putting tinfoil in it because I knew you could cook a baked potato um, wrapped in tinfoil. And I knew you could cook it in the microwave, but I for, it didn't put together. Those were not two things you could do at the same time. And I also didn't know the very first day um, when I was living in this flat in England, um, I wanted, I want, I thought I would impress, my, I wanted to make friends. So I thought I would impress them by, by cooking for them, which I don't know why I thought that because I couldn't cook. And so I got some spaghetti and I offered to cook, but then I wasn't sure if it went on the stove or in the oven because I knew lasagna you put in the oven. But I, again, hadn't realized like you do the cooking of the noodles on the stove beforehand. I just hadn't made the, connected a lot of those dots. So luckily, um, my friends just cooked the pasta for me. And, and ironically, they're still friends I'm friends with to this day. So I guess it worked, my, my ploy worked. But um, I do, and one of my flatmates, I remember her saying that it's really relaxing for her to cook. And I thought that was just preposterous. But now I do find it, I do find it relaxing. Um, but I do, I will sometimes multitask and sometimes read some manuscripts or answer emails while, while cooking as well. But yes. Oh, wow. So like if uh, somebody's trying to get your attention, they've really got to hook you because you may be watching a, a pot boil. <laughs> exactly. I do remember I did take on one client once whose work I read, you know, just kind of do to do, read a submission. But yeah, but but that's not really what I do my my main body of work, obviously. But yes. So um well, lots of uh, lots of questions to, to ask. We should start with being in editing. Uh, this is something that I'm bringing up almost every episode because uh, I find that when I go out and I talk to writers, they're interested as well because we had some high-profile exits by associate editors not that long ago. Um, they blew up on social media and let everybody know, hey, these are this is what happened to us. We weren't paid enough. We were overworked, and publishing is not viable for us. Um, did you feel that way at all when you were editing? Did you feel, did you have to work a second job or was this at a time when publishing was paying a little bit more money? What was your experience as an editor prior to becoming an agent? Um, I mean, I don't imagine they were paying much more money then, um, but also like that was all I knew. It was my first job out of college. All my friends were in publishing also making no money. And so, um, yeah, I guess I did. I didn't really think about it and I didn't have I do remember once we went out with some friends who were in finance and they paid for us and that was very exciting but but in general you know you just made not that this is the same way to live but this is just how I lived you would make the choice you know oh should I should I go out for drinks after work or should I take public transportation today right you kind of make a choice like oh I can just walk from the path station to uh, to my office on 55th, and then I can save that two dollars or whatever, and you know get a taco after work. So I don't know. It just kind of was. I had a cheap studio apartment 
that I ended up sharing then. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I was, I was living in, well, not New York proper, but Hoboken right across the river. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I didn't have a second job, um, but I just, yeah, I made it work. I had, and I did have a very good, um, both, both my bosses, both uh, Jason Higgins, who was my boss in marketing when I was at William Morrow, and then Barbara Lilicki when I worked at Harper, had very good work-life balance. Um, and I think that was very key. When I worked in bo both jobs, really, you were done at five, you were not expected to work any later than that. Um, in fact, I remember, and kind of looking back, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But I remember, I think once my boss had wanted me to stay a little late and I said, I've got a tap class at 5.30, I've got to leave now. And she said, oh, okay. So I went to my tap class, but I think that was probably um, very, very key in being able to have a very sane work-life balance was just having having bosses who um, who also who also embodied that and encouraged us to do the same. Well, if you're reading submissions while you're cooking, are you are you still uh, keeping a work life balance going at this point? I mean, well, but that's I, I don't really I shouldn't make it sound like I do all my submissions. Then <laughs> that's the only time you read submissions is while cooking. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's I like to right. If it's if I'm reading something while I'm cooking, it's because you know it's oh this this um, writer has just sent a revision and. I'm curious to see what she did. It's, I rarely have, have work that I'm like, oh, I need to get this done. Unless it's a contract negotiation, then I'm like, Ugh. but yeah, generally I'm, I'm just genuinely curious and I, I want to see, you know, I want to read and I want to see what it is, you know, what changes they've made, et cetera. Um, and really the times, anytime I would get frustrated with publishing, and think, oh, I shouldn't do this anymore. Then I would think, well, what am I going to do in the evenings instead? Well, I would read, which is what I'm doing in the evenings now anyway. So I don't know. But I, I, I personally haven't had the frustration feeling in a long time. So, yeah. One more uh, question about money and then maybe we'll, we'll start talking picture books. Um, but you become a, an agent in 2007 and I've had enough agents on this show assure me that for most agencies, not all, but for most, you're looking at somewhere between three to five to maybe more years before you're actually making a, a living as an agent. Uh, and then they had to, you know, work side jobs or do something else while they were getting going. Was that your experience? Um, I definitely did not make much money when I started. Um, I'm lucky to have a husband who's got the full-time full -time job with the benefits. Um, I also, so I started in 07. Um, and got pregnant shortly afterwards. So basically from, my son was born in 08, my daughter was born in 2010, and I had very rough pregnancy. So I could not, could not read while cooking, could not read, could not cook, could not do much, much of anything. And so I wasn't getting a ton of work done in those, those first five years anyway, just because of, of life. Um, but the amazing thing is they, you know, they, they grow up as children do. And, and I was actually very inspired by, um, I don't remember who the author was now, but it was one speaker that we had at the, the Rutgers conference, which I'm on the council for. 
And she said she actually got more done when her kids were young because she couldn't do things like go out for lunch with her friends or take a phone call from her mom or whatever. She would definitely set boundaries and say, okay, the kids are napping now. I need to get as much done as I can between two and four or what have you. And you would just really focus. And I found that to be really, really encouraging because I do think when the kids were young, yeah, when I put them down for their nap, I really, I had to focus. There was no, there were no time for any other distractions or anything. And even now, um, they're 13 and 11. So it's a little, a little bit more free time, but I, a little more flexibility, you know, they're not crying. I was going to say they're not crying sometimes. Sometimes that still happens, but um, yeah. But during the day when um, when they're at school, I really focus. You know, I, I focus from nine to three, pretty much eight to three now um, on my work, and it's it's nice to have clear cut boundaries. And the I find that if I, you know, if I have a set block of time, I can get more done than if I just had this endless amount of time. Then, then I might find more time for distractions, et cetera. But. Isn't it funny how that works? If I have only two hours, then by God, if those two hours will be incredible. Whereas if you give me all day, I'll get about two hours worth of work done. Right, right, exactly. So, so that was just very encouraging advice for me to hear as, as an agent with, with young children. And um, yeah, you can, you can definitely make it work. So. Well, so at this point, uh, now established agent, uh, been at it for a while. The kids are still crying a little bit, but mostly <laughs> I've been around enough sobbing teenagers to know that it never ends. <laughs> There's always something, <laughs> but a little bit, a little bit more independent, giving you, you time to work. Uh, you can, at this point, I assume, do anything you want. So what is it that you're actively looking for? What do you want to do as far as uh, what, yeah, what, what kind of projects are you looking to get involved with? Oh, let's see. Um, I, I do have a lot of picture books right now. Um, but again, I never say, I never really say I'm close for submissions because I never know what's going to, going to come my way. So I do like a lot of, yeah, humorous, uh, voice-driven rhythmic verse, poet, uh, rhyming picture books. So I'd, I'd like to see some middle grade, even some YA, nothing super dark, but something along the lines of, um, I love American Royals, is that by Catherine McGee, which is basically um, kind of a revisionist history. If George Washington, when offered the chance to be king of America, had said yes, and so that America has a royalty, um, or Jenny Han to all the boys I've loved before, something light along those lines, um, or contemporary realistic middle grade along the lines of Kathy Carr, who I represent, who wrote 365 Days to Alaska for Abrams. I find to have a balance of picture books in middle grade, just because there's only so many picture book editors to submit to. And so I don't like to overwhelm. I know editors are very overwhelmed already with picture book submissions now, with, with submissions in general. So kind of balancing that. Um, I'm sometimes looking for new illustrators to take on to, especially to diversify our roster a bit more. Um, graphic novels. It's funny because I don't, I don't read a lot of graphic novels myself, but 
I, I've just been really interested in the in how in in publishing in general and in kind of the rise of graphic novels. Obviously, graphic novels have been around for a long time, but when I was at Harper, they I feel like everyone wanted it was an era where everyone wanted to publish graphic novels, but no one really kind of knew how to do it. Right around like when Baby Mouse came out, everyone was kind of getting on that bandwagon, and now. You know, now there's so many publishers that have devoted graphic novel imprints. So, so that's exciting to see. My kids really love graphic novels. Um, so even though I don't read a lot of them myself, I really do appreciate them and um, just the range of projects that are that I've seen coming in. So, um, yeah. So those are, I guess, some things I'm looking for. So kind of more of the same of what I've been doing. Um, well, for graphic novelists, um, do you, when you accept a writer who wants to write and get paired up with one of your illustrators for a graphic novel, or do you want somebody that does both the writing and the illustrating? I, I would prefer somebody who does both the writing and the illustrating. But having said that, I do have some writers who have scripts that I'm trying to pair up with illustrators. But it's not someone, I, I didn't take that person on for that purpose. I would taken them on for um for for picture books really and then they decided to go into graphic novels as well and that often happens where I'll take a client on in one genre and then they'll say hey I want to try I want to try this too which I find really exciting um and I like the challenge of seeing where people go like people who think that they want to do picture books and end up doing novelty board books or think that they want to do picture books and end up doing more like early reader chapter books. I find that really exciting to really hone their um, craft and figure out where where exactly they want to go. Uh, you mentioned you want to stay away from anything too dark. So I'm always looking to set a boundary so esteemed audience knows where the line is. What's too dark? What's an example of something you've read about? Ooh, no, that's, that's too much. Um, Again, I even hate to say that because I do, I did wrap something that was really, really, really dark. So you never know, like, if the writing is good. Um, oh, I don't know. Again, I. Well, now it sounds like maybe we could get away with just about anything. If you happen to grab you in the right, the right mood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, some, some are just too, I remember reading one novelist work and I told her I'm like I really love your writing but I'm just too scared <laughs> to go any further but especially edgy anything that's super edgy I don't know and, and I think the thing is there's so many people out there who do dark and edgy that I just don't feel the need, the need to compete with that it's not like they're not going to find a home right so yeah but I don't I don't I don't know where because because I never, again, I don't want to say, oh, I wouldn't like that for sure, because I don't know. It depends on the writing. Well, I think that's probably a fair answer. I mean, theoretically, we could probably grab you with an erotic thriller if the writing was just just perfect, right? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the one. <laughs> I guess we've established it. <laughs> how many? Uh, how many clients are you uh, representing at the, at the as of this recording? Oh, uh, around fifty, maybe. But it's really 
you know, it's not that I have 50 who are actively working on things now, or some are, you know, that because I'm worried, I'm always worried to say a number because that makes me sound like I don't have time for any, any of my clients, but I kind of like to think of it as kind of like, I don't know, some dominoes or a little wind-up toy. And I get one going in the right direction and then I start the next one's going and then I look back over and this one needs another little help. And so I get that one going as well. Um, so not everyone is, although, although I will have, there are times definitely when everyone has decided to send me their manuscripts all at once, my clients, and then I've got a lot of work to do, but um but yeah, again, having a nice balance of some novelists who are kind of going away to write their novels and then coming back versus picture book people who have a more steady stream of books that they're working on versus illustrators. I do encourage all of my illustrators to write as well. Um, one of my clients said that I forced her to write. I did not force her to write. I may have strongly encouraged her to write, but I also then sold some of her books, so I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but um, but I definitely have illustrators who are, in addition to writing their stuff, illustrating other people's work, so then that's a different, a different kind of work that, that I'm doing for them. Gotcha, so 50-ish um, clients uh, as of this recording, um, how actively are you still seeking clients? How many more, are, is it, how many is it likely that you might sign over a given year? Um, I probably sign an average, maybe two a year. And I have already signed two this year, but, but it's not, again, it's, it really needs to be a client that I feel that I just physically cannot live without representing this, this text or this artist. Um, so for example, somebody I signed in January, I had actually read their book like last spring and I just kept thinking about it and yeah, going back and reading it. And when I would go back and read it, I felt the same way about it as I read it the first time. So those kind of projects that I just feel like I, I cannot live without are the ones that I would have to sign. So does that happen pretty frequently where you send somebody a very polite rejection? Like, I wish I could take this. And then you keep thinking about it. Like, did you find anybody? I hope you didn't find anybody. I wanted after all. Well, that, that particular, no, I usually don't reject them. Then I just, I just sit on it or, or if they'll get back, if they follow up with me, I might say, Oh, I'm thinking about it still. Um, there were two clients that I took on from the Julie Headland's um, 12 by 12 picture book challenge that I had read, I think I read manuscripts for her in like maybe March, 2019, maybe before that. And I really, there were two that that had stuck out to me. And I, I think I'd asked for more work and I just kind of thought about them. And again, I just kept thinking about them. And so then March, 2020, you know, it's the start of the pandemic and I, that I felt like I needed to shake things up a bit. Um, and I had a little bit more time to, to take on some new people because a lot of people were not writing then. And also we were at my parents' house and I feel like I had tons of free time because my, my mom, who was a teacher, would help my kids with the school and she's retired now. 
And then in the evening, they would go to my sister's house. So I was actually able to do like more during the pandemic. So I call these two my COVID clients because I just really, you know, you need something, a little spark of joy or whatever during the pandemic. So because I kept thinking about their work, I I wrote to them. I'm like, can you send me more in this one particular um, poet, Susie Levinson? I said, okay, can you, you know, send me more? And then she sent me this manuscript called Pantaloons, Poems About Animals and Pants. And I was like, boom, done. I have to, like, I, I have to sign her up. And especially there's different litmus tests kind of I have for myself, right? Like if I can't stop talking about the project to other people or and I can't stop reading it aloud to my family, like that's a good sign. So um, yeah, so I took on, Susie is a client and she has, so I ended up selling the poems about animals and pants book to Cameron Books, which is coming out two years, maybe something around then. Yes. And then the other client, um, Tasha Hilderman, I also signed her up and then sold, sold another book, not that book, but a different book that she sent me down the line. So doesn't often happen that you're reading passages of books or submissions out loud to your family, but then it's a, it's still a pass. Um, yeah, occasionally, but I feel like usually if I'm super passionate about something and I mean, sometimes I read stuff aloud to them and they're like, eh, like that's not very good, but often they will like it. And they do, they do get involved with helping me, um, with projects sometimes they'll um give me advice solicited or not and like the one the one example i like to give i don't know if i've if you've heard this before but uh mike chicatello who's one of my author illustrators he had a book about uh he, he had this picture book dummy and i print i made the mistake of printing it out and putting it on the kitchen table and then of course one by one my family looks at it and they're like, what? Like, what's going on with this story? So we actually had over dinner, this family discussion about what could happen with this story. And I passed along the feedback to Mike and, and he totally went with it. And we ended up selling the book and it's Beach Toys versus School Supplies. And there's a scene in the book where the uh, school supplies build the whole idea is they're having this sandcastle building contest. And I like to push my clients in terms of thinking, what is the, because there's so much predictability in picture books and I want them to push them to think, what is the least likely thing that you think will happen, but is still within the realm of plausibility? So we decided having, you kind of expect that the beach toys would win the contest. So I'm like, what if the school supplies win? So they, so the school supplies build, and I, I was trying to encourage Mike to make it some like Taj Mahal type building something really fancy and my daughter just looks at me she's like what should be a school I'm like huh yeah yeah it probably should be a school so anyway I told Mike and he went with it and it's a school and so my daughter is very proud now anytime she sees that spread she's still like yeah that was me um yeah so she's my she's my harshest critic for sure one of my clients I'll she'll send me some stuff and I'll tell her my thoughts and then she'll say well, what did Amelia say? And I'm like, well, this is what Amelia said. And she, but she does have some, you know, she's only 11, but she does have some good 
some good astute comments to make. So, yeah. One reason not to send you overly dark things is because how are you going to get the family involved? I know. Or, yeah, kind of shield her away from it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> this, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming most of your authors are, are, are charmed by this and not mortified that you're talking about their manuscripts. Right. No, 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 definitely. <laughs> I mean, if they were, I would not do that. But um, no, a lot of them, I mean, a lot of my clients are relatively local and I've met them and they've met my kids or even if they're not local, you know, a lot of them I've still met at conferences or et cetera. And so... Um, yeah, but yeah, the problem is my kids think they're friends with them. I'm like, no, you know, when my son got a phone, he's like, oh, can I put this client's name, number in there? I'm like, no, that's crossing a line <laughs> somehow. I feel like that's slightly unprofessional. The client's like, I don't mind. I'm like, no, no, we're not doing that. But, but no, it is helpful to get there. You know, it's, it's just always helpful to get a fresh eye. Um, and I feel like I've somehow for better or worse trained them um like my daughter even loves going through picture books and thinking about pagination and things like this that most kids probably don't sit around thinking about but um yeah so it's helpful you know I might think something's funny but I'm like is this really funny and so it's helpful to have a slightly willing audience to uh to bounce ideas off of and my husband um he had studied illustration at Syracuse in college so he's helpful for if I have questions about some of my illustrators, because I've, I mean, I, I feel that I have a decent picture book background, you know, especially working with Barbara Lelicki, who worked with some amazing people at Harper. Um, but I don't have, I don't have an art ground, background per se. I cannot draw to save my life. I do not understand perspective. In fact, we've been playing this game recently, Telestrations, where you um, draw a picture on this whiteboard and you pass it to the next person. And everyone makes fun of me because like my husband's illustrations look actually what they're supposed to look like. And when I draw something, not so much, you know, like the cookie, if it's a cookie jar, I'll draw the cookies. So they're all stacked like this on top of each other. Cause I don't know how to draw the perspective. So, um, so he's been very, he's always very helpful. If I show him a sketch and I'll say, uh, I feel like it's not working, but I'm not sure why, or, oh, what do you think of, of this possible new artist? Or, um, you know, just two different versions of a color piece, which, which do you think is stronger? Just because I've looked at it so much at that point and I, I, I can't tell anymore. So, um, yeah. So again, and it's not, at the end of the day, obviously I'm the one making the, <laughs> making the decision if I want to take on a new client or obviously the suggestions I pass along to the authors and illustrators at the end of the day, right? It's their book. It's my name's not on it. It's up to them, but it's, it's just useful to get somewhat educated feedback here. So. Well, no, uh, you said elsewhere um, that you're uh, looking for uh, clients that you can create some sort of personal connection with. Uh, and so when I see that, I always wonder, like, how, what's the line between trying to be open to making a personal connection with an agent and coming off as really creepy and, 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 and not at all uh, business professional? Uh, and then I assume that that also plays into how you evaluate uh, somebody as a potential client is, hey, at some point, you may get feedback from my child. Are you somebody, if, if you call the house, 
you know, you're somebody that I would, I would, I would be comfortable with saying hello to a, whatever child answers the phone. Um, so what was, so what was the question exactly? Uh, the question is just how, uh, how, if you're looking at, at, at an author as somebody you want to make a, a personal connection with, um, how can an author go about making themselves personal connectionable? <laughs> that's, that's a phrase I'm going to invent for this. <laughs> I think just being, just completely being themselves. Unless them, unless the version of themselves is completely crazy, then maybe not being themselves. But I think just being natural and and knowing, like, I'm just a person, right? Like, yes, I'm a literary agent who happens to know editors and can get your book published. But like, really, at the end of the day, like, I'm just a person like they are. And I love um, people I can connect with and just just be able to chat naturally without feeling forced. Um, I think a, like a lot of times at conferences, people, sometimes writers will, will try too hard or won't try at all, but just people who um, are just kind of acting naturally and can just have a normal natural conversation are great. And I shouldn't also stress too much, there are, I mean, one, one thing I really love about this business is everyone, I, I act, all, all of my relationships with my clients are different. So it's not like, oh, I have to have this super close, personal, warm, fuzzy relationship with every client. If they are someone who doesn't want that, then that's, that's fine too. Like, and I definitely, I love knowing, you know, everybody communicates differently, for example, right? So I have some people who are big phone chatters and some people who are, will text and some people who will email first thing in the morning and some people who email first like late into the night. And so I just find that really interesting actually. And when people, when potential clients will ask me how I work, I said, well, I will work however you work. That's, you know, that I find is most, is most important and just most productive as well. Um, yeah, so in, in general, I just, yeah, I really enjoy people. I find them fascinating. And so that's one thing I really enjoy about this, um, about this line of work. There's one thing I thought to myself that I would probably never want to be, uh, is, is a, a literary agent at a writer's conference. Almost anywhere else in the world, you're, you're just a person, I assume. But if you go to a writer's conference and all the writers know you, know the editors, I feel like that's suddenly you're the only human in a zombie movie. Like, oh, no. <laughs> do, does that make you, uh, I mean, do, do you feel like a sense of almost like a celebrity uh, when you go to a conference like that? How do you never kind of maybe like a d level celebrity like nothing too high but um yeah I, and it depends on the audience too right it's obviously easier if there's if i'm not the only one but you know if there's several usually at a conference you'll have a few other editors and agents there but but recently i did my first um in-person event in Dallas um, in April, beginning of April. And I was, it was an agent day and I was the only agent there, but again, it was fine. Everyone was super normal. And yeah, I, I don't know. I find most interesting about Writers Conference is that I am a total extrovert. Like I definitely 
draw energy from other people. And usually at writers' conferences, like 95% of them are introverts. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I remember somebody saying to me once after I had just done like 10 critiques or pitches, they said, oh, you must be exhausted. I'm like, oh, not really. And I'm thinking you might be exhausted, but I like, I don't know. I know some, some editors and agents, they say after a conference, they need to just totally shut down and decompress. But I find myself, I get more motivated by that. So, um, but I say that also, I am an extrovert for sure, but I also work by myself all day long. And so maybe that enables me to, to then be able to be very um, up and energetic when I'm with people at conferences. Sure, your introvertness is all stored up. You've, you've got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever had, uh, and I should emphasize, writers are the best people on earth, especially the ones listening or watching this show. Um, but um, have you had the experience of somebody pitching you in a bathroom or uh, trying to corner you while you're trying to eat? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I feel like the bathroom thing, everyone's been super warned about that. <laughs> So in the bathroom, you can pretty much just go to the bathroom and that's fine. Um, well, yeah, of course, while you're trying to eat, people are telling you stuff, but also that's like, that's why I'm there. Right. So I don't know, that's just part of the job. And, and again, I'm, I'm happy to listen to their pitches and, you know, so yeah, I, I guess I don't get annoyed by it because I feel like that's why I'm there. If sometimes if they're, going on for too, too long. And there's somebody else who is also there, you know, it's important just to read the room and be aware that other people will want to talk to, talk to different editors and agents as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would just more get annoyed if someone was kind of hogging all the attention and there were other people there who also wanted to chat, but um, yeah, that's why I know it, at different conferences and events, you're not supposed to like, it's very bad form, right? For all the editors and agents to just to sit at a table by themselves. And sometimes I feel bad going to a conference where um, they kind of whisk the editors and agents away to a separate room because I, I do enjoy chatting with people, especially in in-person conferences in around the country in different regions. I just find it really interesting, um, like the subjects that people are writing about and. I don't know, it's different, which is which is one of the reasons that the in-person conferences are really are really fun, I think. Gotcha. So I think I must be uh, projecting a little bit of my introvertness onto you. And I'm, I think I've, 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 I've correctly sussed out that I'm not a good literary agent candidate. Whereas <laughs> you are, are. But I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a lot of introverted literary agents who are amazing at their jobs that maybe they just don't like that aspect as much as I do. But. And it is an important public service announcement that if you're that writer that's talking on at length and length and length and, and hogging up the space, don't do that. Because that, that's not going to impress you. It's annoying. It's annoying the person they're trying to impress and you're annoying your fellow authors. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, prospect uh, literary agent. I always uh, want to give people the opportunity to, of all the literary agencies that are out there, the, the esteemed audience could be choosing. Why is prospect agency the best? Which well, is, isn't it? No. Um, I mean, I, no. <laughs> and again, it's, it's something that agents always try to stress to people too. There's no one right agency 
there's no one right agent, you know, someone could have a great experience with an agency and somebody else could not. Um, what I really love about Prospect is that um, it's a smaller agency. There's still a few different agents there so we can bounce ideas off of each other. Um, but also there's a real sense of community there. And so recently we've had our third um, client retreat at Highlights Foundation. We actually had our first one during the pandemic, but it was in the fall and it was beautiful weekend. So we were able to do everything masked and outside, which was great. Um, and then we had a slightly larger retreat in the fall, the following fall, and then we just had one in the spring. So these are times where you have a chance to meet one-on-one -on -one with your agent. You also have a chance to meet in small groups. Um, sometimes we'll group people according to the genre they're working on or different interests. And then there will be large group discussions to talk about the industry. So I know that the clients really appreciate that. And, um, and again, just that sense of community because so many people are working in, you know, they're working alone. And so to be able to have that, um, yeah, that, that opportunity to connect on, with people who are working on projects somewhat similar or very different to them. Um, I also, and we tried to do that. We used to also do a soiree in the spring where we would invite editors and art directors. Um, we used to have it in, in Brooklyn. Now we have it in Manhattan and everyone would come together. And it was a great way just to, to network and be able to um, place faces with names and everyone to see the artwork um, that our illustrators have done. So that's been something that we really made it a priority to find opportunities for clients to connect with one another and also for them to collect, connect with um, industry professionals. And we also try to really make an effort on the illustration side to do promos. We used to do um, holiday calendar and some postcard mailings when everyone was in the office. Now that editors and art directors are working from home, we do a monthly promo where every artist is given a, um, a prompt and then they can create a piece of artwork about the prompt and then we send that out as an email blast. So that's something that's a benefit for for illustrators. And yeah, I think just the, the fact that we, um, that we are somewhat small and I know a lot, we, we do have a lot of clients, but for example, at the retreats, I was able to meet some of Charlotte's clients, one of Emily's clients, and it really has that family appeal and that we work on a broad range of things. So if, if one of my clients wanted to work on some adult projects, I can go to Emily and Anne and say, hey, I have this adult project. You guys work on adult books. Who are some people I can send this to? And then likewise, the other way around, if Emily has anyone who's writing a picture book, she can send it to me, give my feedback, see who might be a good fit. So I like the fact that there are only a few of us, but we cover a range of genres and can bounce ideas off of each other. Gotcha. So you're networking with each other. The clients are networking with each other. Are you inviting uh, outside editors or anybody to come in and, and meet everybody? Or is it more um, about getting to know the prospect family? At the retreats, it's just getting to know the prospect family. But at the soirees, those are when we would invite the editors and art directors in so that they would have a chance to, yeah. And, and also, right, just to see that they're real people as well. Um, 
which is which is important. Um, and some, and usually after we would have the soirees, we would have at least a few good sales right after that. Um, just getting, you know, getting people excited about them. And it's, it's important as well for editors and agents to be able to, um, to make connections. And again, it's not, we have had people fly in for the soiree. So it's not um, only beneficial for, for people who are in the New York, New Jersey area. Um, we try to provide those opportunities. Like that's an example of an opportunity where even if you live, um, you live in Minnesota or North Carolina, you can come come to the soiree um, and be able to meet people there. So, and then also in terms of location, Emily and I are both um, based in New Jersey, but Anne is in Texas and Charlotte is in the Boston area. So it's been nice as well. Even before the pandemic, we were already working, um, working remotely. And it's, I find that it's nice to have people just in just in different areas who also have different connections in their regions too. Uh, regular esteemed audience members know that this is something I'm passionate about is decentralizing publishing. Cause I figure the, the further they get away from NYC, um, the, the more opportunity there is for a diversity in every sense of the word of, of, of people to work in publishing because of, of, of the lower cost of living and uh, you know, just folks that have a completely different experience that haven't lived in, in NYC. So, yeah, are there things you find that you absolutely have to be there in New York City to be able to accomplish or, or are you able to, um, to to be as effective as a literary agent in New Jersey or Texas or someplace else? Um, yeah, no, definitely. I, I like, again, I like being able to get into the city and meet with editors for, meet with editors for lunch, for example, if if you know there's a contract that's been especially painful then afterwards i'm like hey let's meet up for lunch let's kind of you know have a good lunch can just wash all that contract pain away um and so it's nice that at least both emily and i are here and we can go into the city and meet with people and then um i might then i'll relay information back to charlotte and ann as well and say oh hey i just you know i had lunch with this person here's what they're looking for now, here's what they're not looking for, you know, keep them in mind for these things. Um, but those kind of things we've also been able to do over, over Zoom. We just had a Zoom meeting last week um, with, um, with Union Square Kids and we had a Zoom meeting with, with a woman who's starting up an American imprint of a Spanish publisher who does mostly adult, but it's so interesting to hear what they do. And I don't know, that was just an example of, I find that I always, if there's some kind of meeting potential like that, I just will say yes, because, and I always encouraging my authors and illustrators to take advantages of opportunities like that, because you never know, um, maybe that's not something that's right for us now, but could be right down the road. Um, and that woman, for example, was based in Miami. And whereas Union Square Kids, is based in New York, but it was still a Zoom meeting that we had. Did that help to? So I guess I, I enjoy being able to put, put the face with the name and make those personal connections. But I feel like Anne and Charlotte um, haven't been a loss, have not been at a loss um, of being able to do that while being in Boston and Texas. 
I do love that idea of um, always being able to, 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 to network and to meet people because even if they're not going to represent the book you're working on now, well, you're only ever going to write one book. <laughs> you, might, you might have something. And I also love that you, you want to take somebody out to lunch after a tough contract negotiation to soothe things over because at some point you're probably going to want to sell them another book, right? Right. No, for, yeah, for sure. And especially if there's someone I haven't met before. And at the end of the day, the, the issue with the contract, like that, that's not even, it doesn't really even have to do with them. You know, it's more like the contracts person or the publisher, not the editor in particular, but yeah. So when it comes to contract time, you've got to be resolute. You've got to represent the best interest of your clients. But after that, there's no reason we can't all be wonderful friends and, and, and put that unpleasantness behind us, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, looking at uh, wanting to, to uh, submit to the prospect agency, I noticed you guys have something kind of fun on your submissions page that I haven't seen other uh, agencies do. Um, and that you've got, uh, you want to know someone's favorite sentence from the manuscript they're submitting, and you also want a one-sentence description. With that one-sentence description, I'm curious if, if, if it's like two short sentences. Is this, does that still count? Does it literally have to be one sentence? And then why do you want to know a favorite sentence from the manuscript? So first of all, the one sentence is the, it can be thought of as the log line of the book, really the summary um, of what your book is about. And that I find to be the, the most important information on that form because I can glance and say, oh, that, you know, that sounds really intriguing or that sounds like something I've read a lot of times before. Um, also the most recent book read or the most influential, there's, there's a few pieces of important information on that form. The most recent book read is important because if it's, I get a lot of Dr. Seuss. I get a lot of Dr. Seuss spelled wrong. That's kind of a red flag. Um, I mean, it's not gonna be a deal breaker, but it's definitely a little bit of a red flag versus if they've read something that is recent and maybe not a bestseller, but still um, maybe a book that I really like, or um, it can just show that they're doing the research, right? If it's a bestseller, they might have done a little bit of research, but if it's something that's current, but not a bestseller, um, but still a good book, they've done their research even deeper, I find. Um, the, the favorite sentence from their own book, again, if it's a great sentence, then you wanna, you get a tiny glimpse of the voice, right? A very, very tiny glimpse, but at least it's something and it shows you what they really, what they really like about their, um, their work. So I think that's important. And then I think there's also a line about where they've heard about us. And so that's important because if they were referred to us by, you know, if they're referred to us by one of my current clients, then I, I feel even more, you know, uh, I don't want to just say an obligation, but an interest too, to see, okay, let me, let me check out this person and see, you know, see what they're doing. So, but the log line, I find even if it's good practice, it's good practice for any writer. And that's something I'll often encourage my writers to do. Um, sometimes what I'll encourage them to do is to write some like mock flop copy or catalog copy so that if I find their project, and this can be anywhere from a novel to a picture book, if I find that they, they're not really, or I'm not really sure what the focus of their story is, by 
writing flapper catalog copy. I'm doing this because right, that's about the length of the flap copy. Um, you can get a sense uh, it, it helps them to hone their ideas of what the book's about. And then you whittle that down further <laughs> to the log line. And that's also important for, as we were talking about before with conferences, um, it's important to be able to, to summarize your book briefly. What I also encourage people to do is be able to just naturally have a talking point about their book um, so that when they are at a cocktail party, they can say, oh, this is what it's about without, um, I always feel nervous for writers when I ask them what their book's about and they get all nervous and they start memorizing. They, they start reciting something that they've clearly memorized. I just want to hear, just tell me about your book. And I think that's really an important skill to have. So that's something I'll encourage more um, when I'm giving talks at conferences and I'll encourage writers to do. Obviously, I don't want, I don't want my clients pitching their books <laughs> to other agents at, at parties and things. Um, but I think it's a very important skill to have. And the first step in that is really being able to summarize it in a sentence um, and giving us, yeah, giving me a sense of what it's about. Okay. Uh, well, when I, back when I was pitching uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast, available now, esteemed audience, I used to just, for simplicity's sake, it's Batman at age 11. And then if they, if they had questions, I'd go on about these giant robot bees and, and, and some other things. Is something like that, or what is a what is a good talking point without launching into? A, and now it's a presentation, and I need you to sign on the dotted line and buy. <laughs> right. No, anything like that where um, you could say it's this, but that, or it's um. I'm trying to think of of one that we used. It was kind of like it was. Castaway, I'm trying to think how we pitched it. Castaway meets the sixth sense or something like that. I think that might give too much away because you don't want to give too much away, but something along those lines or um, any kind of like, like the line I said for the, um, the like American Royals, how it's revisionist history if America had a king. Like that's something very easy and palatable. That's kind of the definition of high concept, right? Something that's easy. One of the definitions, I know that can be controversial to talk about what high concept is, but that's kind of one of the definitions I find. Um, one really interesting, and I have not read this book. I'm trying to think if this is the right book. They're Violent Delights, is that what it's called? I was doing research for a presentation I was putting together and I was talking about log lines and, and, and comp, comp titles. So kind of you can work those together. And this one was described as Romeo and Juliet in 1920s Shanghai. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Um, not all books can do that, right? Especially if it is something a little more literary sometimes, and, it, and it's more character driven versus plot driven. Sometimes it's harder to do that. Um, but yeah, so 365 Days from to Alaska um, by Kathy Carr. That was, that was a book that had a rather easy pitch because it was a girl who grew up in, off the grid in the bush in Alaska and she, her parents get divorced and she needs to move to Connecticut with her grandmother. And so just that, that transition of what it's like um, living in suburbia away from nature that she's used to. So 
Gotcha. So there's something short, punchy, gives away the, the line. And I want to emphasize when you mentioned um, favorite line from the, the work, make sure, because like for me, it's going to be a punchline for a joke, which you need to set up. But you're looking for best well-constructed sentence. If we only read one sentence, give us a flavor of your writing. What's your best sentence? Am I, am I, am I understanding that correctly? Right, right. Yeah. And if it's, I mean, it could be something witty, you know, if, if, if your book's funny, then it should be something witty, right? If it's lyrical and dramatic, it should be that. Don't give me a witty line from a lyrical dramatic or vice versa. Um, yeah. But, but again, that's not going to be the end all to be all. Really, um, it, it gives me a sense of it, but obviously I'm not going to judge it just from that. But it is important in terms of um, prioritizing and is this something I'm going to read right away, et cetera. Uh, and then you want to know which writer has most influenced them. Would it be smarter there to pick something that would maybe be a direct uh, comparable author for the project you've written? Or if, hey, here's my beautiful Stephen King. I'm sorry, here's my beautiful child's book. My, my most influential author is Stephen King or, or Anne Rice or, or whatever. Yeah, it should probably be related to what you're doing. Sometimes people will pick a few or um, the most recent book read. Sometimes people will say both like a picture book they read and <laughs> it's not like if you're a picture book writer, you're only reading picture books. So that's actually good to see, I would think. Well, the nice thing about hosting a podcast is nine times out of 10, if you want to know what the most recent thing I read is, I don't know who was my most recent guest, their book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Saves time. Um, uh, and then you, you ask about previously published books. So if, a, if an author comes to you and they've had uh, a book that didn't do so hot, uh, bad sales, or um, that was self-published and it, it did fine, their mother loved it, but it didn't, it didn't catch the market by storm. Is that something that's a concern? How can an author overcome that? Um, I don't. I don't generally look at sales numbers at all. I will, if someone says, it, it, and it kind of depends on how many were published. What, um, you know, if they've had two or three self-published versus, or if they've had like. 60 or even like 60 sometimes a lot of people, writers will have a lot of educational books that they've um published for like for an educational publisher or something so they might have a lot of those um it, sometimes i will look on when they've had books published um if it's been like 20 years ago i might be a little more hesitant, but it really depends on that manuscript. I just don't feel personally, I'm very good at like reviving an author's career, but if it's something that they could say, oh, I published this so many years ago, but I'm really, um, I'm really looking to break into the market now with this different book, or I'm still writing picture books, but um, this is something really knew that I'm inspired by the current market and would love to go in this direction. Something like that. So it does, it, it really depends on the manuscript, but if someone's had books that were published, a few books published like 20 years ago, 
the manuscript that I'm reading shouldn't feel of that ilk. It should still feel new and current. Gotcha. And I'd hope it all, I would probably downplay, I mean, you can't, not the lie, but definitely say like if you've had books published, but maybe not to play that up as much. If that helps, I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> It says it's a little bit of a situational type of thing, so no, no two authors are going to be in the exact same boat. Although I'm curious, 20 years ago, is that just because that gives you some idea you didn't write anything for 20 years? Or what is it about the, the 20 years that would, that would give you pause? Um, I think... I think just because I've, I've tried before to, to take on clients where oh, they've had this work published before, now they want to kind of revitalize their career. And I find that personally, I'm not very good at doing that. But again, it really, it really does depend on the manuscript. I don't think I've seen anything where I, like, oh, I love the manuscript and they published these books before. You know, so I- love the manuscript and the, 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 the previous publishing credits are not necessarily a moot point, but not as big of a, of a, of a factor. Right, right. Yeah. I love the idea that the reason I didn't write a book for 20 years is I was in a coma. What, the apprentice guy was president? What what happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I woke up out of my coma and I wanted to send you a manuscript that I, I, I wrote about my coma experiences. That'll... Yeah. And, and I guess <laughs> the thing too is <clears throat> that can't be your selling point, I guess I would say. Your selling point can't be, oh, I wrote this book, you know, 20, and I don't know why I picked 20 years ago, but you know, something like that. It has to be, you can't rest on, you can't rely on that success to sell the new book unless it was something that was a bestseller. Like really just focus on the current, the current pro project and make sure that it's fitting in with the current marketplace. So. Sounds uh, speaking of fitting in with the current marketplace, uh, Steve, I'm watching our time and I, I'm aware it's, it's flying by and a Steve audience knows that I uh, ask every publishing professional who's good enough to come on this show about diversity and traditional publishing. So we've had a we need diverse um, books movement and the reason we had it is because publishing, uh, like most American institutions, wasn't acting right for, uh, for, for many years. We're hopefully starting to see that uh, turn around how do you see the overall market in terms of where we're at with um, with being more inclusive? What are you doing and what is Prospect Agency doing to increase diversity in traditional publishing? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's been very exciting that publishers have been more intentional about publishing more diverse voices. I've, I do feel very lucky that my publishing journey in particular that was something that was actually always encouraged. Um, when I was working with, I said Barbara Lalicki at Harper. I mean, she was working, she was working with the Pinkneys and Faith Ringgold and Mildred Pitzwalter and Bar uh, Rosemary Brosnan, who's still at Harper and has started up Quiltree. Um, she was working with Cynthia Litek Smith and Rita Williams Garcia. And I feel very lucky that this was, it was. And Rosemary likes to say, I used to publish multicultural books and now I publish diverse books um, because she, yeah, she was just somebody who, who has always published those books. So I, I came from a background where I was always encouraged to, um, to look for and publish 
books by um, from marginalized backgrounds. So I am very grateful for that experiences. And so when I started, yeah, when I started taking on clients, that was something I look for, but I wasn't intentionally going after, I, I was really seeking voices and illustrators whose work I love. And that's, that definitely still is the most important thing for me. Um, and I'm very excited by that. I'm also, and, and I also do try to, to guide writers, especially if I'm um, reading critiques or meeting with people in conferences that if they are writing something that's maybe not their background to, you know, just encourage them to see what other books they have and see and doing a little digging and seeing if they um, are considered the right author for that particular story. So I am looking a little bit at that, but on the same hand, I also don't, I would never tell an author what kind of story they should be writing. I really want to encourage my clients, especially if they're coming from diverse backgrounds to write, um, really write the story that they want to be writing, I think is, is super important. And yeah, we definitely are looking to, um, especially with our illustrators, find more illustrators from, from diverse backgrounds. And I know Charlotte especially has been has been making a real effort at that just because I'm not taking on as many clients these days. Um, so those are some things I feel like that, yeah, that we've been doing and, and really thinking about. Sure. Uh, and then, because I also, I ask everybody who comes on the show, Rachel or have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? So I was thinking about this. I have not seen a ghost person, but I do feel that I saw a ghost ladder at one point. Go so, on. so this was, I think this was like the first time I, my parents had gone on vacation. I had just come back from studying in England and I brought with me one of my French friends who wanted to um, live in America. So she came and lived with us for the summer. So my parents were on vacation. It was just the two of us. I think we had watched Top Gun or something. I don't know. I was super tired and I went to check to see. I, I opened the front door just to then double check to make sure it was locked. And I swear I saw this ladder going up to the second floor. And I just was like, just told my French friend, oh, I think there's a ladder out front, but we shouldn't worry about it. We should just go to bed. So of course she's freaked out because if someone going to break in and then of course in the morning it wasn't there but yeah so I don't know it was this random phantom ladder so not very exciting not like real ghost or anything like that so I have a friend who used to have a picture book or, or a good middle grade novel the phantom ladder tell us more <laughs> wow right I mean I see it I think I was just super tired and just like yeah but yeah I wish I had some more uh yeah a real ghost i have a i have a client who wrote a book about a flying saucer and then alien um who and the text is written straight up as if it's a stray dog that they've taken in but it's actually this alien it's just called the stray by molly rattan so that was exciting but i've not seen any as much as i wanted to after watching those brady bunch episodes where 
they see the flying saucer, but they've really kind of made it up. So now is the time to be publishing your flying saucer books, esteemed audience, because uh, as we record this, and you'll, you'll hear this after the, the news has already broken, but next week Congress is devoting two days uh, specifically to the testimony about uh, UFOs and uh, UAPs. Uh, so once full disclosure happens and we all know what, what the truth is about flying saucers, these flying saucer books are going to look a little bit silly. So publish them now. Get them out. <laughs> when I was writing the, the book of David, that was one of my fears is I got to write this fast before the disclosure happens and, and, and everyone knows I'm making this, this garbage up. <laughs> Which... Whew, got it in under the deadline. So that's... <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure. Rachel, thank you so much for, for making the time for, for esteemed audience and, and for me. Um, my last uh, question uh, for today, although I hope to bump into you at a conference or, or elsewhere, and I'll have more questions for you that I've, that I've been storing up since. Uh, but for today, uh, my last question is if there was one bit or as many bits of advice as you'd like that you could impart to every writer who's watching or listening to us, uh, what would you want to tell them? Uh, big piece of advice, you said? Uh, any, any, as many bits of advice as you like. I know you teach courses. I, I assume if I got you going, you could <laughs> go on for some time. But if they're only going to take uh, one or two really crucial things that might make a difference in their career, what would you want them to know? Hmm. I would say, hmm, I'm trying to think, that, I mean, the most cliche piece of advice I, I would give is just, um, it's, it is, I mean, the reality is it is a tough road, but not to give up. There's so many clients, there's clients I take on who I think, um, they think it will be a much shorter road and that they'll get published very quickly. But I mean, I have had, I've had people who worked for years and years and years, um, but then finally did publish. So just to really keep at it. And then also to remember it is, at the end of the day, it is a business. And to be thinking about your book and where, like how people are going to sell it and where you would see it in the marketplace. Um, and along those lines, not to be um, too precious about your work, to be open to change. And yeah, because I think sometimes if you get too precious about a single work, it almost inhibits you from being able to write other things. So really almost that thinking about your work, um, not, not being too precious with it so that, yeah, you can go on to write other things and experiment and not be afraid to fail is a huge thing just to keep keep at it keep writing keep illustrating and pushing boundaries and writing what you love all while remembering people need to sell it i don't know those would be both my both my the dreamer aspect and the reality side of it um but that if you keep keep working then then you can indeed be published that's that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience uh, find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Yes, I am on Twitter. I do not post very often. I'll mostly retweet a lot of my clients' things. And now I'm trying to even remember what my tag is exactly. I think it's at Rachel Prospect. Um, if 
you just Google Rachel or look at Rachel or prospect on Twitter, you will find that. And yes, that's probably the best, the best place to follow me, especially for updates about, um, yeah, some of my clients' work. Hi, as always, esteemed audience, for more interviews like this one with the world's best literary agents, authors, editors, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It's Batman at age 11. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.